But um, today I'm going, to, I'm going to talk to you and we're going to continue on this theme of uh, this bride. But how many people know that we, we, love, we love messages that edify us? We love messages that, oh, God loves me and I'm this person and I've got this and how am I going to do this and and all those things are true and they are right. You know, how deep is this love? Jesus sent his son for me to die for me that I can become. And that's all true and it's beautiful. But at the same time, we have to contend with the whole word of God. We have to contend with some of the scriptures that either we don't understand. So, well, I used to do, I, I don't understand that. So I just read on to a place I did understand. I don't really know what that is. It's in your word. I think it's for me, but... I don't know. I either didn't like it, didn't understand, so I moved on. There are some scriptures that, you know, if you don't hate your life, you're not worthy of me. These are the words of Jesus. What on earth does the guy mean? Because in the paragraph, I heard how much he loved me. But now he's telling me I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy of him. I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. I actually came to divide a mother and a father, a brother and a brother, a sister and a sister. What? What happened to we're all big one loving family? Well, we're that too. But we have to walk and I have to walk in. And one of the things of my journey over the last two years of God saying to me, Greg, you need to preach the whole word of God. Now, five years ago, I would have told you I was. When I got that prophetic word through a woman that randomly turned up here. I didn't know from a bar of soap. I didn't understand on earth what it meant. What do you mean, preach the whole word of God? I am preaching the whole word of God. You know what, today I can tell you I understand what that meant. The whole counsel, the whole book. Not just take a bit that you maybe like or take a thought and actually make the thought around the message. No, preach the word preach the wholeness of my word because there is a truth and a story and a fullness of truth that I want my people to come into. And we're going to look at some of that today. I'm going to take you maybe to the other side of a truth that we have to, that I've never heard preached in any conference gathering like this. I'm going to preach a message today that I've never heard anyone else preach. When I've talked to people about that, you know what? None of those people have heard this message preached. Why is that, do you think? Might be too scary. But God's word, God says he disciplines those he loves that they would come into the fullness of what he has. See, God is not about punishment at all. It's not punitive. God puts passages and truth in a scripture to help straighten us up because if we digest so on on only half do you know what happens we are lopsided if we only digest on half of his word you can actually end up lazy slothful but the grace of god covers me so i don't have to do a thing no, no, no. the grace of god when you get the fullness of that empowers you to be an active follower of christ not a passive one, not someone who just sits and sits and sits. and No, no, the grace of God is designed to catapult you, to lay your life down, to find the fullness of truth, that you would die to you. And God gives us passages that we would help to define us so we could see it. So it would be a little bit like a hot coal. Ooh, wake up. Ooh, because I've been sleeping, maybe. And so today we're going to look at the other side. Is that okay? The second part, because I'm a firm believer and there are two parts to God's kingdom. Grace, truth. Worship me in spirit and truth. There is always two parts, faith and deeds, not one. But I personally think that the Western church has have sat in this part for way too long which has caused us to maybe be a little apathetic. And when we maybe see some of these scriptures that are here in front of us, we, well, he can't be speaking to me because he loves me. 
Or maybe he is today and I hope that he's going to speak to me today as well. And I really want to, this is all part of me sharing my journey with you. And I don't want you to just accept it. I want you to go and study it yourself. I want you to be like a Berean out of Acts. And these people were, they were eager to hear. But then when they went away and they studied. They were eager. They came with a heart of expectation, a heart to, come on, what are you going to say? Then they went. They didn't come in with a mindset of, oh, well, you know, we're going to critique this thing and just see if, oh, we got it wrong. No, no. So I want to ask you today to open up your heart. Open up your thinking. Open up your presuppositions. Open up everything you've maybe ever heard and allow the Spirit to speak. Is that cool? Father, I want to pray today that God, that we would have a heart of humility, that we wouldn't be dull of heart, prideful of heart, arrogant of heart, thinking we have you in a box. But Lord, that we would be open, that we would want to hear from your spirit, that we would contend together as a community, and that love would prevail. It's not about right and wrong, Father. It's about contending for truth and in love, helping one another reach that goal. So at times that's correction. At times that may be a little rebuke. At times that's a lot of edification. Your word is in place to edify us, correct us, straighten us, that we may walk in the plumb line of truth, not either side of it, not one degree out of it, Lord, but to walk in this plumb line, this fine line, that you said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. My way is brokenness. Come to me broken. I am the truth. Repentance. Repent. The truth would draw you to a level of repentance. And I am the life revelation. So Father, today I pray the spirit of revelation would empower us and would fall on us. And that we would be people of truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, well let's just fly through. I'm going to read this all out and I've got it on my PowerPoint and I've just, we've just put a bullet, and bullet points on this thing here. And so you may want to grab the CD or go on the website later on. But what is the first thing? There's ten things I'm just going to really quickly communicate that I've discussed over the last four messages on the Bride of Christ that I've been talking about, not the other guys, so you won't find it on some of the other messages. It's just on my messages being, will you marry me? And we're up to part five today. The first thing that we've said is that knowing God and his son, Jesus, intimately is vital if we are to understand, engage with, and believe by faith this incredible eternal purpose. And the only way we can receive this is by our revelation of the Spirit from heaven. Number two, what Jesus accomplished on the cross is the start of our journey of discovering the absolute fullness of truth that God has for us to discover and our enemy comes to rob this from us. It's his sole purpose. Number three, God's ultimate purpose and plan for his church, which is you and I, not a building, you and me, his ultimate plan isn't founded on human need but was formed in Christ before the foundations of the world. Which means before we even fell, he had his plan and purpose worked out. Number four, we've talked about Paul's fear that the church has been led astray in our minds from the simplicity and pure devotion to Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 6. And he has us, the church, focusing on things that are meant to be means that lead us to know him but we in our human wisdom have made them ends in and amongst themselves. We can make healing an end in itself instead of it leading towards him. We can make blessings an end in themselves instead of the blessing catapulting them towards him. We can actually make our prophecy or our skills and talents an end, not a means towards him. All those things will go. You know, I've been thinking about this and this is one of the areas that God has really challenged me on. I, I used to think, and I probably preached and had to repent of this, that you know, part of building the kingdom of God was taking your natural talent and using it to connect with the world. That was building the kingdom of God. 
But my challenge is this, and I'm not saying, hear me, in the fullness that's wrong, but my challenge is this. Jesus was a carpenter. You see Jesus building houses, tables, furniture with his hammer, calling that the kingdom of God. I don't. Is there anything wrong with talents? No, God's given them. But who decides who uses them and when? See, this is of a spiritual dimension. It's an internal, invisible, spiritual transformation of a person before it's anything else. Do you look like him? Do we look like him? Am I reflecting his image internally and externally? rather than just taking my natural ability and going into a world? Am I taking that natural ability or talent and having this internal transformation so you know what? When they look at me, they see him. Because at the end of the day, if I'm just good with my hands, you know what? Glory can come back to me. Can't it? And I look good. I don't want that. I want people to see him. So that's an interesting thought because we've got a whole movement talking about that. Number five, bride is to be a pure virgin, free from idolatry. Idolatry being anything we love more than God. Talk that about our spouses, our children, our sport, our money, even our own lives. That's why God says, love me with every part of your being. What a prospect. Listen to these words. Jesus loving me and proving it by putting my interests before his own in everything and me loving Jesus and putting his interests before mine in everything. Love from Jesus, sorry, love from Jesus, producing love for Jesus, expressed through love for others. This is God's purpose for our lives. Love from above produces in me love for him, expressed through love for others. You want to ask me what the will of God is for your life? I just said it. Right there. It's not rocket science. You don't have to go digging for it. It stands right in front of you. Love me. Love others. Go into a world and make a difference. That's the will of God for our lives, church. It's not a mystery. It's not secretly hidden. You don't have to go looking for it. It's right there. Do you know what? The enemy comes and he comes to deceive us in our minds from the simplicity and the pure devotion of loving him, knowing him, loving others, walking together. It's the vision for the church. We don't need to go up to a mountaintop and bring it down. God says, I don't want to make it that hard. I'll put it in my word. But can you see it through the spirit of revelation? Are you doing it? Big questions, isn't it? Number six, I talked about there being two garments. Garment of salvation out of Isaiah 61.10 and the garment of clean fine linen in Revelation 19.8 which are the righteous acts of the saints and how the bride is clothed in both. Number seven, the bride is to be making herself ready now and the sanctification process, the constant choosing of God's will and life over my own is our bridal preparation process. This is not automatic, but a daily choice we make. Number eight, God gives us the human marriage covenant as a typology, foreshadow of the mystery of our future inheritance, but also as an environment which forms love in us and prepares us, making us ready for this marriage with Christ, where the husband and wife are becoming the one flesh. We unpack that. This is why there are no human marriages in heaven because they have fulfilled their ultimate purpose, preparing us for our marriage with Christ. Ephesians 5, 22 to 32. So you make marriage your end, you'll never see the, per- the greater purpose for it. A man is to die and love, a woman is to submit. The same analogy between us and him. It's a beautiful environment that God gives us that we would attain to where we're supposed to be going. But if all I ever see it is an environment for me and my self-gratification and my life here on earth, I'll never see the fullness. That's all good stuff and that's part of it. Seek first my kingdom and I'll add these things. But then you're the right way round. 
As I said, you don't need marriage to find this. Paul, there wasn't marriage. He had this revelation. He talked about it. He said, actually, I counsel you not to get married because it can take away my kingdom perspective. It can consume you on the world stuff. Nothing wrong if you do, but make sure it doesn't swallow you up so you're blinded to a greater reality. We've got to contend for this stuff in the Bible, guys. Otherwise, we're just aimlessly cruising along and there is no promotion after the grave. And I'm going to look, we're going to talk about this today. And I wouldn't be doing my role if I wasn't speaking this stuff to you. Because I was having this thing in this thought in the shower and I thought, you know what? thought was this, do people really want to know? If I, the question was to me was this, if someone had something that I didn't know and it was for me, would I want to know about it? Or would I at least want a journey to contend for it to discover whether it was true or not? And I came with the answer, yes, I would. You see, we've got to be content within ourselves and our own relationship with where we are with God and who we are in Him and be content with that while other people may have revelation understanding that we don't have and they're going to speak because it's for all of us and not get upset or defensive or try and rationalize it away but go, you know what? There's something and I've seen the change and I've seen the fruit and there's something on this that person that it's not the person, it's what God's doing. I want it. I actually want to hang with this person or am I just, you know what? Nah. I just want to live for me. It's a challenge for us. The iniquity that is in us. The nature that what we don't understand let's rationalize away. The Pharisees were great at it. This doesn't fit my box. You can't be the truth. So I'm going to kill you. Number nine, God is looking for a bride for his son that is wholeheartedly devoted to him and his will and that loves the son more than their own life. Some of these things I've repeated and intertwined so we get it. What bride ever married a bridegroom without falling in love with him? And how could Jesus marry a bride who hadn't fallen in love with him? I've shared in my messages about my own question God posed me to Danielle. Number 10, what Jesus accomplished on the cross at Calvary is a free gift to all who choose to accept him as their Lord and Saviour. But we must push on into Christ to receive our reward of inheritance, which is a prize and not automatic. You're going to hear a great message tonight from Sam Willis. Sam is 21. I've been meeting with Sam now for a while. He's got a great message on the judgment seat of Christ. If you want God, you'd be out listening to that or at least be on the internet. So, with all these points in mind and especially the last one, let's come with me to Matthew 22, 1-14 because we're going to look at a man who finds himself at a marriage feast in the kingdom of heaven but he's thrown out into outer darkness because he's not dressed in the appropriate wedding clothes. Anyone ever heard this message? Murmur, murmur. <laughs> Have you ever thought about this? Where did Jesus do his first miracle? It's interesting, eh? Does his first miracle at a wedding? I don't know. That might not mean anything. It might mean everything. Just let me, give me an hour when you're all there. There? Okay. Parable of the marriage feast. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Listen to the words, read the words as I'm, as I'm reading this thing. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling to come. Again he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fattened livestock and all butchered, sorry, are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their fire on 
sorry, set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Verse 11. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Interesting, eh? Okay. Verse 1 says, Jesus spoke to them in parables. So what is a parable? Okay. Parable, the answer, a parable is, a, is simply a truth told in story form in order to help explain a previously taught truth and a parable makes one central point. You get that? So it's just simply a truth told in a story form to, in order to explain a previously taught truth and, it, and the parable makes one central point. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven and how a king gave a wedding feast for his son. Now we can see here in verses 1 to 7, he's referring to the Jews. So he's referring to these Jewish people and he starts by telling a parable before this of two sons and a parable of a landowner. And then he gets on to talking about this parable. He's talking to the Pharisees, but they don't want to know. So he's talking to this Jewish people, these Pharisees, religious men, but they really don't want to know what he has to say. They couldn't hear what he was saying. Why? Matthew 13, 15 teaches that their hearts had become dull, their ears could scarcely hear, and they closed their eyes. But listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. Okay, so come with me to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verses 10. And Jesus is teaching a parable about the sower of the seed. And so we have these Jewish men that he's talking to. He's telling the story about a king sends out invitations to a wedding feast. But these certain men, they don't, they don't want to know. They can't hear. Okay, Verse 10, Matthew 13, 10. So Jesus in 13, 1 to 9, has just discussed about the parable of the sower. These different environments that the seed gets thrown out into. Verse 10, And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. To the church, you could put it there. It has been granted to you and me. It has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables. Because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. And he goes through in the case of the prophecy by Isaiah. And he just speaks what i just spoken to. You know, their heart has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return. But listen to 16. But blessed are your eyes because you see. They've got the spirit. Blessed are your eyes you see and your ears because you, they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Verse 18 Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil, will, evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. The kingdom. 
mysteries of the kingdom have been given to us to understand and come into because we, got, we have the Holy Spirit. If you've acknowledged Jesus as your Lord and Savior and invited Him in, the Holy Spirit, spiritually born again, is within you. And we are a spirit people, not a, not a physical being. I live in a shell, but I'm spirit man lives within. And I am too able to determine and discern the times in which I live. Aren't we? What's happening around me in the spirit? That's what Jesus is saying, but there's these, they couldn't hear what they were trying to say. And the enemy comes when the kingdom message is preached and tries to steal, tries to nick the seed. But we are to come into it. And we, if you go through in this passage, you'll see four different environments of soil. Christian environments. One environment understands, allows it to come and produces a fruit. It's funny, you go to the second part and it actually says that the word brings persecution. You can hear it, but as soon as you start to live in it and allow it to start to transform you, it brings persecution. The word brings persecution. You understand what I'm saying? You want to be full on for Jesus? Expect persecution. You want to be full on for him? You want to live a life of truth? You want to be a voice of truth? Expect people and the demonic to come for you, at you. Now our battle's not with people, but it's with principalities. Because you're a voice of truth. You're standing for truth. These men couldn't see it. And we know the outcome. Let's just move now to keep on back to chapter 22, verse 8. Because we see Jesus, he changed tact. So he's talking to these men, then he changed tact. And he gets to the slaves, he says, to the, the king says to the slaves, go out. Go out giving this wedding invitation to anyone else. Anyone else that will hear it, the Gentiles, get out there, either good or bad, who want to come in and dine at the wedding feast. And we see a whole lot of people respond. An invitation is given. And a whole lot of people respond to the invitation and arrive at the wedding feast. You with me? Okay. The place is chocker. A little bit like Dave and Nell Jay's wedding, I think, next week. <laughs> Where are we going to fit them all in, bro? Yeah, that's cool. Hopefully God does. <laughs> right, here we go. I guess first question, what does good and bad mean? Now Jesus says no one's good, doesn't he? No one is. Why do you call me good? No one is good except from the Father. It's not about being good, is it? It's about being reconciled back to the Father through what he did. So this isn't a, oh, I'm bad because I haven't been reconciled to the Father and you're good because you have. Because none of us are good. Not a good and bad issue. It's a perfect issue. None of us are perfect. Well, I hope not anyway. If you think you are, you're probably caught up in some form of deception. Good means a believer who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour and they are being faithful, obedient and persevering on the journey of loving Christ, laying their lives down, dying to themselves through an act of the Spirit for Christ no matter what till the end. It's called the sanctification process. Where you are laying your will, what you want, down and picking up what he has for you and living a life worthy of what he did on the cross. Okay, what does bad mean? Meaning a believer who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour, but they are still living for themselves and their wills and their wants. They have accepted the gift of being justified, just as if I had never sinned. Thank you for what you did on the cross. But they are still living for self. They are still directing their own path, what they want, and my will will be achieved, meaning self-will. Salvation, what he did on the cross, just is a gift. And it's given through faith. 
So you can be justified and moving forward, still living for you. Can't you? Can you? Can't you? Just because you've prayed a prayer doesn't mean that you think, see like God. There's a whole transformation of an internal working that the Spirit wants to do within you that you would become like Him. Now, as I said, all this is in here that we would actually arrive at this point. This isn't to condemn. This is to convict. If anyone's feeling condemned right now, it's from the enemy. This is not a condemnation. Nothing of God, I said, is punitive. It's in His Word to help us walk this walk of truth and for us not to lay on the side of apathy and just go, you know what, thank you for what you did on the cross, but I'll just take that and abuse that. Now, God still loves you. It's nothing to do with going to look at heaven or hell. It's nothing to do with punishment. But it's to do with understanding and now walking and giving glory to Him. Okay? Now, I personally believe that the wedding feast referred to here in Matthew is the marriage supper of the Lamb, which Revelation 19.9 speaks of, which will occur at the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. We're just taking this bright thing up to another level. What did Scotty say? I got no more power, I got them. So question, was this man who was put in outer darkness a believer or a non-believer? Hang on to your seats. I believe, I believe and carry a conviction today that this man was a believer. And I'm going to give you three reasons why. Number one, he had received an invitation to the wedding festivities, which he had responded to, and he was there at the feast. Okay? Do you know, when you got saved, when you prayed that prayer, whether you know it or not, there was an invitation that went out to you to a wedding. You may not have been told about it. Look, I haven't been. This has only come through me seeking God with others and walking a journey. But there was a wedding invitation that went out. And this man receives his invitation to the wedding festivities, which he had responded to. He actually responds and he's there. So he's in this environment, the kingdom of heaven. He's in this environment. There is a king, okay? Remember what a parable is? Story, truth, behind the truth, behind the story. This means he was spiritually born again because he was in this kingdom reality. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again to enter the kingdom. You must be born again to see it. You must be born of water and spirit, water and spirit to enter it. And the third, the king addresses the man in verse 12 as friend. I believe there is some form of relationship that has been established. He calls him friend. Now, the Greek word for the friend, if I can pronounce this, is hetoros, which means a comrade, mate, partner. Now, the reason this man is thrown out of the wedding festivities is because he doesn't have the right wedding garment on. He's there, but come with me. If you're not already there. And it says this in verse 11, when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there, who was not dressed in wedding clothes. He says to him, friend though, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? Man's speechless. And then he says, put him out into the darkness. As I said to you before, in your notes, there are two types of garments. Garment of justification. You acknowledge what Jesus did on the cross. You are justified, made whole. But there is a garment in Revelation 19.9 that talks about the righteous acts of the saints. Fine linen garment. They are different. You with me? 
This man had the garment of salvation, justification, justified, which placed him in the presence of the king. But he didn't have on his fine linen garment, which is acquired through the sanctification process, the choosing of God's will over one's own will, which is what is needed to be part of the wedding festivities. And so he was removed from the intimate environment into a place of darkness. Who's, hope no one's, no one asked that question. <laughs> Don't switch off. Okay, don't switch off. So here's the question. Now what is this place of outer darkness? Because we see this term outer darkness referred to in two other areas. We see it in Matthew 8.12. So write that down and go and have a read about the man who is a centurion who has faith. You read this passage, then it turns to this feast where Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are. Later on we'll unpack that. And we see it in Matthew 25:30, which is the parable of the talents. Now once again, and I say this in love, I've never heard the message of the parable of the talents preached in the fullness of what's actually written down. I've heard it preached that we've got all these talents and you know you go out and serve a world with them and if you don't do that, you get the one that has one, but no one's ever taken it to another level. No one's ever taken that, in my experience, and gone, what is this? this? This fellow with one, he ends up in this place of outer darkness. Think about that. Three servants of the one, waiting for the one to return. All being given the same, just different amounts. Is he a non-Christian? I don't know about you, none of my non-Christian mates are waiting for the return of Jesus. They'll live in life, they don't even know he exists. And we've got to think, we've got to, we've got to contend. I'm speaking to me. I tell you, in the past, I, I don't understand this, move on. Oh gee, I love this bit, I got this from my head. Instead of, no, what is this God? What are you saying? And seeking him. Spending the time with him. He will speak if you ask. I asked, he has spoken. Now help me and help me walk in discipleship. Help me walk straight. I'm just doing the best I can and I hope you'll love me enough to walk with me. And I hope we love one another enough to walk with us that we would discover the fullness of what God has for us and not let this enemy whose sole mission is to stop us arriving at a certain point. So I'm going to suggest to you today, I am, and once again, I don't just believe this, I carry conviction of this now through what God has revealed to me that this isn't referring to hell, but it is referring to the darkness outside of this intimate ceremony in the kingdom. And I want you to listen to other theologians that believe this as well. So this isn't just what Greg Simner believes, and I've been on some trip, smoked too much hooch or something. <laughs> Had a couple too many DBs. Anyone listen to Charles Stanley? Anyone think Charles Stanley is credible? Maybe, maybe not. Do you know what people thought Paul was a deceiver? Fascinating, isn't it? Okay, Charles Stanley talked about this outer darkness in his book, Eternal Security, which I've read. The final verse of this parable is so severe that many commentators assume it is a description of hell. It is not. Keep in mind that this is a parable. A parable makes one central point. The point of this parable is that in God's future kingdom, those who were faithful in this life will be rewarded and those who were not will lose any potential reward. Come out tonight and hear the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible says that a fire goes through every follower and the fire will determine whether one has built their life on hay, wood and stubble, stuff of the world, and those who have built their life on gold, silver and precious stones, things of eternity. And there is a loss for some and a reward for others. Not a judgment on hell or heaven. Some will be given more privileges and responsibilities while others will have none. The outer darkness refers to being thrown outside a building into the dark in that, and in that place there shall be weeping or gnashing of teeth. 
Kenneth voiced in his expanded translation of the Greek New Testament said, the outer darkness is the darkness that is outside of the king's banqueting house. In other words, it is not hell. Erwin Lutzer, in his book, Your Eternal Reward, wrote, these warnings are addressed to believers. God does not let his children get by with disobedience, even though their place in heaven is secured and their transgressions are legally forgiven. Thayer's Greek-English lexicon says the outer darkness is the darkness outside the limits of the lighted palace. It's evidently a space in the kingdom, but outside the circle of men and women whose faithfulness earn them a special rank. Among the privilege of the overcomers is nearness to Christ. Go read Revelation 2 and 3. To the overcomer I give. Boom, boom, boom. The opposite of this is the darkness outside of his presence. The unprofitable servant is simply being excluded from the light and the joy of the feast with the Lord. One either enters into the joy of the Lord and is included, or one is cast out from the joy and is excluded from his fellowship. Now, I'll try and get this guy's name right. Dr. Spiros Zodhietz. In his wonderful commentary, The Complete Word Study, New Testament with Parallel Greek, commented on the outer darkness and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. He said these terms may be applied to believers who have failed the Lord in their service. In this instance, the outer darkness may be a reference to a place or position of far less rewards for the servants who prove themselves less diligent than those who used and exercised their talents to the fullest. The expression would then refer to the degrees of enjoyment of heaven rather than the inferring of hell. Entrance into heaven is gained by accepting Christ's sacrifice for justification, but a person's rewards in heaven will be determined by what he did or she did for Christ on earth. In the case of the believer, it will be a weeping or expressing sorrow over not having used the opportunities God provided. The phrase gnashing of teeth indicates anger at oneself for ignoring the marvellous opportunities that he or she had on earth. There's a different picture being painted now, eh? Now, guys, this is not to condemn, it's to convict. For some of us, it's to wake us up. You know what? Everything God does is actually motivating. Everything is motivating. When we walk in the Spirit, every truth that's as hard as it is actually is life. But when we're walking in the flesh, that's when it's another story. Because a spirit hits the flesh and there's a war. The Bible says that we have to be in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, attaining things of the Spirit, allowing through the Spirit my will, my mind to literally get sucked down a drain hole. I've got this message called invited to your own funeral. That's what happened the day you invited Christ in. You actually invited your own funeral. And you were to stay in those baptism waters and come out this new and walk in this process of allowing him to be Lord of your life, not just Saviour. You see, there are so many aspects to God that we have to understand. He's my Father. I love my Father aspect. He is my Lord. And a Lord and a Father operate at different... They're the same one, but you know, you know what I'm trying to say? When a Lord speaks, it's stand up, son. Even when a Father speaks. My Father spoke, boom. And it wasn't fear-driven, it was love-driven. But then he's my friend at times. He's my saviour. He's my groom. So we've got to understand every aspect of the, what makes up the complete God, not just the part that you've come into. Because if all you see him as a saviour, you'll stay in that place. He's happy for you, but he's trying to push you towards this other reality. He's trying to get you from there to there. If all you ever see him as his friend, you know what? It's very hard to discipline a friend, isn't it? It's very hard to walk beside a friend and say, you know what? this part and this part and they in love with grace and all that so we have to I, I just when I see God I, I see the circle and all these bits of the pie and I'm on a journey of understanding every part so when he says jump I actually ask how high because to come into the to come into the hands of a living God is a fearful thing to stand actually at that judgment seat I tell you it won't be having a cup of tea and a biscuit. 
It'll be an awe and reverence of, oh my goodness. And that is actually to be motivating, not fearful. It's love. That's love. Not fear. The enemy will try and bring fear and condemnation. But God brings love. No different to me and my children. I don't allow them to do things. I discipline them so they will arrive at a point that I know they need to get to. They can't see it at the time. They're trying to battle their will with mine. And you know what? If you do this, Madeline, you're going to hurt yourself. Give you an example. We went to the pools the other day. And I said, be careful. I don't really want you going on the hydrocyte, honey. She had a tooth. One of her teeth was, was loose and it was knocking out. Oh, I want to go. Oh, I want to go. I said, but be careful of your tooth. No, no, I want to go, I want to go. Be careful of your tooth. I don't want you to go, I'll go, okay, go. Well, what happens 10 minutes later? Oh, mouth is spitting blood. And we just, I know, the tooth is in Pyra Pool somewhere. And she's like, oh, mouth. So we cleaned her up and I said, now, what did we learn from this? I should have listened to you, daddy. It's right, your dad's always right. Your mum's not, but your dad is. Just a joke. <laughs> Thought I'd lighten the atmosphere of it. <laughs> but do we know God in every aspect? Because you know what? Yeah, He loves me, but like a good father, He will actually discipline me so I will reach where I need to go because He sees the future and the purpose for me that He's already ordained for me with Him. Warren Versby in his Bible exposition commentary, speaking of the weeping and ashes of tea, said, We need not see this treatment as punishment in hell, but rather the deep remorse of a man who was an unfaithful servant. He grieves deeply in the darkness outside of the king's palace, but he is still a servant and thus will be welcomed back into the king's estate. And this is true too. There is a new heaven and a new earth that awaits every Christian follower of Christ. There's some interesting stuff in there, but we'll maybe get to that. This man was dealt with by the Lord, lost his opportunity for service, and gained no praise or reward. To me, this is out of darkness. And this is the last one. Tony Evans in the book Prophecies, sorry, Tony Evans in the Prophecy Study Bible quoted Zane Hodges as saying, Every Christian will be rewarded based on his words, deeds, and faithfulness. Those who are unfaithful, parable of the talents, will have their rewards taken from them and given to those who are faithful and they will be cast out into the outer darkness, the place where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The outer darkness described in this passage is likely a lesser state in God's kingdom. Outer darkness, the darkness outside the limits of the lighted palace without out of doors. Darkness, shadow. You look at the root word, it comes up, shadow. Shade caused by the interception of light. See, this isn't a justification issue, it's an intimacy one. It's not whether I'm saved or not, it's how intimate am I with the Father. See, Jesus, he's not joking when he says, love me with your whole heart, mind, soul, strength. See, the enemy tries to get the church to love God with their strength, with their mind, with their soul and their heart. So he gets us doing a whole lot of stuff out of doing. Go listen to Johnny's message last week, it was fantastic. But if I want to become a rugby player, I don't become a rugby player by doing. I have, to, I have to eat, I have to sleep, I have to train. I have, I'm becoming this thing. See, we are to be, and out of being we do. It's not a justification issue, it's an intimacy one. How well do you love him? I mean, do you love him with all your heart? Or has he got half, or 90, or five, or... You know, this is what it's about. John 2 says that his father's house, there are many dwelling places. Go and listen to Brooke's message. Get Brooke's message. Brooke talked about Christians that are dwellers and sojourners. Some people just come to and fro, to and fro, to. They're looking for something. They're, they're, it's God, God, give me this, give me that. I need this, man. But a dweller is someone who just sits in the presence of God and just sits in his presence because he loves him. He's not necessarily after anything. There's nothing wrong with asking God for stuff, but because he loves, just speak to me, talk to me. You're my father. 
And it says here that in his father's house there are many dwelling places, many rooms. In my house there are many rooms. The most intimate room is the one with my wife. Think about this. Think spiritually, don't think physical. But the most intimate, my house, there are many rooms in my house. There is a lounge. There is a dining. There is a toilet. There are three bedrooms and an office. But the most intimate where is with my wife. My children don't come into that room in that space when we're intimate. Now they can come in and out, but not, not to dwell in it. Yeah? Now where are my children? They're in the next room, close to me, but not in that room. It's a dwelling, it's an intimate thing. And they're allowed in other different rooms, but the intimacy room with a bride and the groom, it's an intimacy issue. It's nothing to do with punishment. It's like love, love, love. And look, at this judgment seat, I'm looking, and I am looking, and my, my life you know, it, 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 it empowers you. It, it, you are saved. You're not going there. You will be with me. But at what level or what depth of intimacy, sorry, not level, depth, do you want to be? It's all for you. The question's out there. It's not special. It's not anywhere. You know, it's not, oh, this guy's on staff, so he's this. It's for us all. Our roles don't define who we are as people, do they? I'm not a senior pastor. I'm Greg Simner. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. That's all I am. Now I have a gift on my life, but it's not connected to being a senior pastor. That's just... I won't go there. We're all the same, what I'm saying. It's for all of us. There are no special people. But you know what? There are people with grace on their life more than others. There are people who have, the Bible says, measures of faith. And together, when those people come together and walk together in love, everybody ends up at the same point. But when the church continues to not look at discipleship, what you pan as an option, not the option, and thinks, ah, oh, well, I'm going to do it on my own, you never reach where you're supposed to reach. Because in that process of people coming together, there is refinement. There is edification. At times there is a, there's a straightening up. There's a rebuke. It's a beautiful thing. It's an incredible thing. Left to our own devices, we are lost. So it's an intimacy thing. Listen to this. The same word for darkness is being used. It's in a number of places, but in 1 John 2, 9 to 11. So 1 John 2, 9 to 11. This passage is referring to believers because John addresses them as brothers or brethren. God is still in the believer's heart, but because he has quenched the spirit by poor choices, he is seen as walking in darkness. He says, darkness is within you. You're my brother, but you're making wrong choices. You're, you're still, your will is still manifesting. You're still judging, you're still critical, you're still selfish, you're still all this stuff. You're getting anger against your brother. So there's this darkness, there's this iniquity that's in me. Nothing to do with whether he's saved or not, it's just I'm quenching this life that's to come forth through my, my own choices of not dying to me by the Spirit. Not by my flesh, by the Spirit. That's why soaking in his presence is so important, allowing the Spirit of God to move through you. He is the hope, not me. Now, I want to state this unless that's real clear. This has nothing to do with the non-biblical Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Nothing to do with it. It's not a place of punishment. God's judgment of believers is not punitive. As the theologians have stated, the weeping and gnashing of teeth is sorrow over not partaking of what we were invited to. Verse 14 says, many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, few are chosen. The Bible teaches us to strive to enter through the narrow pathway or a narrow door and many believers will try and enter through it but will be unable to because of their lack of obedience to Christ on earth 
and in turn will not be part of this intimate setting. God gives us another parable with the ten virgins. The Bible teaches us that we are to not only partake in Christ's life, but we are to partake of his life. Listen to the words of Paul in Philippians. That I might know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So there's a partaking of. Not just, oh, thank you, in, of. I mean, (laughs) the fellowship of his sufferings. You know what? That is a motivating thing. There's nothing greater. Rejoice. Rejoice, the Bible says, in suffering. I'm not talking about weird suffering, good suffering. Rejoice in suffering. Why? Because it produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. Hope in what? Hope in this eternal perspective. And I've shared this, that we are to be the hope of the world. When things kick off, the church is to be the rock. The church is to be the pillar on the earth that the world runs to. Well, that won't happen to someone who just thinks, God, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't send these things my... Oh, gee, I'm going to sidestep that process. I'll, I'll get, I'll, I'll get that. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15. For the love of Christ, I love this word, controls us. NIV says, compels me. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Okay? Adam died, therefore all died. And he died for So that they who live... Sorry, Jesus, sorry, it's talking about. So that they who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him. So they, you and me, who live now because of what he did, might no longer live for ourselves, but for him, who died and rose again on their behalf. Revelation three eighteen to 22. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and the eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Turn back to me, to my ways, the way I do things. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes chooses God's will over our own in every situation. I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the what? Churches. I've heard preachers, evangelists, take this and preach a salvation message saying, knocking on the door of your heart, let Jesus in. Now, yes, I can see some sort of, you know, yeah, he does knock on the door, he wants to come in. But this mess, this in context is talking to the churches. Jesus is saying, church, I'm knocking on the door of your heart. Will you let me in? Will you let it be my way? I will build my church with my truth. It's not to the lost world, it's to us. Intimacy. Now, I'm almost finished, literally. I want to read, this is what Deb Boyd, who's an elder here, got at a Friday prayer meeting. I read this out before and I took it again. But it just is so powerful now I'm speaking to this. Listen to this. This is what God showed her at the prayer meeting on Friday here. God showed me a picture of a new bolt of fabric being cut to make a brand new garment. He was clearly saying this was being made from new as you couldn't buy it already made or off the shelf. 
it was being created brand new for us as individuals and for us as the rock corporate body. The other important part of the message was that because it is a garment, we need to choose to wear it or put it on. Just as our own clothes don't jump off the hanger and onto our bodies, neither will this garment. We have to choose to wear it. So I want to leave you with a question. What does this particular passage of Scripture in Matthew 22, 1-14 now mean to you as a believer? And what difference do you think it's going to make in your relationship with him? What does this particular passage of Scripture, Matthew 22, now mean?